In the name of Jesus, amen. Imagine there's a hungry, homeless beggar at the footsteps of our church this morning. And he is famished and emaciated, and he's thirsting, and he's dying right before your very eyes. You see his bones through his skin. You see sores, and you see him in anguish. And imagine you're moved to have compassion and pity upon this man, and you go to get water for him, and you prepare food for him in the kitchen here, and you bring it out to him, and when you go to hand it to him, he looks you in the eye and smacks it out of your hand on the ground and steps on it and starts cursing at you. Uh, Imagine there's a blind man who's walking too close to the road. He doesn't see where he's going and the danger that's coming. And so you run up to him, you, um, you holler at him, you warn him, and he turns and he screams at you and he spits in your face and he starts to curse at you. Imagine there's a man who is desperately sick in need of an emergency surgery. He's on his hospital bed. He's in the emergency room. Uh, The hospital calls the surgeon in at 3 a.m. The doctor wakes up. He leaves his entire family, everything behind to come save this man who is dying. And as soon as the doctor arrives, the sick man starts to violently attack that doctor. And in fact, then proceeds to kill him. This is what we see in today's gospel lesson, an extreme rejection of our dear Lord. Holy Week is months behind us, but the lectionary brings us back. It rewinds us back to Holy Week, to Palm Sunday, the week of Jesus' most bitter suffering and death and for the people that he's trying to help. And right after Jesus' triumphal entry, he begins to weep is what the text says. Now the Greek says, or the English translation says weep. The Greek word there is much stronger than just weep. It's not just like silently crying to yourself or tears rolling down your cheek. It's that he's wailing. He's sobbing, choking on his own spit and his tears. However, he's not crying for himself. He's crying for them. Not what is going to happen to him, but he is weeping and crying over what's going to happen to them, to Jerusalem. On Palm Sunday, Jesus prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem. He said these words. He said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus said this would happen, and then 40 years later, it happened. In the year 70 AD, Jerusalem was completely destroyed, utterly destroyed. Forty years after Jesus said those words, there was a Roman commander by the name of Titus who attacked 
Jerusalem. He, in fact, he was strategic about this. He waited for the Passover. He waited for all of the Jews around the world to come to Jerusalem for one event. There are hundreds, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews from around the world coming together in that one city. Josephus, who's a secular historian, records the account, and he estimates that at the time, there were about 1.1 million people there during that time. And so Titus besieged the city, which means he built walls around the city. He trapped everyone inside, and no one could escape. And slowly, they began to run out of resources. So they started to run out of food and water and all these sort of things. Now, while, while everyone was trapped in the city, there was a mentality, a very uh, uh, bad, wild mentality of a survival of the fittest sort of thing. That some started to rob each other, uh, rob one another. Uh, some started stealing food and fighting. The Jewish leaders, they created factions and gangs and mobs, and they started to stockpile food and resources for themselves, and they started to send people out to do this. Uh, as the months passed by, things got worse and worse. People were dying of starvation. There were homes full of deceased families. They had no place to bury them. There was a stench of rotting flesh, corpses, disease running rampant. The streets were full of sick people because of this. There's accounts of children and infants wandering around, the, uh, wandering around alone throughout that city with no mother or father. There was extreme famine. They were emaciated. They were eating the leather from their shoes and their belts. Some accounts even say that they were eating the excrement of animals to survive. There's an account from Josephus, and this is the most gruesome one, where a mother uh, even consumed her own child in despair. This is awful. There were people who were put to death, sold as slaves, the temple was burned to the ground, Jerusalem was destroyed, and there was not one stone, not one stone left upon another of the temple that God had told them to build just as Jesus warned them. Jesus warned them 40 years before it happened. In, in, in fact, in Matthew chapter 24, we have a specific account where Jesus tells them when to leave the city, when exactly to leave. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, he's talking about a particular event, a particular thing that's going on. Um, what we think this is, is that there was a statue of the emperor Caligula that was placed in the temple. And the temple, that was a sign that the temple was now in the hand of uh, heathens. And Jesus said, when you see these things, leave immediately when you see this. Uh, in fact, some uh, Christians who were living in Jerusalem saw that and they fled and they survived on the very evening that they were sieged, before, that the, before the walls were built. But the majority of Jerusalem didn't survive. Jesus told them this would happen even more. He warned them not only of this temporal destruction, but there, that there was an eternal destruction that was coming their way too. If they continued to reject this word, if they didn't repent. So I want you to consider this. Here is a city that's overrun with theft and murder and adultery and hypocrisy 
and wickedness. The, the streets are lined with beggars. The government is completely and utterly corrupt. There's senseless violence. And then their savior draws near to them to rescue them and to heal them. And he comes in meekness and humility and innocence, not only to erase their sin and their guilt, but to turn their hearts to godliness and obedience and to joy and happiness. He warns them of a destruction that is coming, and in turn, they destroy him. They mock him, and they spit in his face, and they beat him, and they crucify him. For, for the past nine years, I've preached this text, this historical account to you. And all of these entire nine years, um, of all the Sundays, this Sunday, I would argue, is the saddest Sunday of the entire church year. Because this is about the obduracy, the hardened heart of the Jews in Jerusalem and their brutal destruction. This text for Trinity uh, 10, in fact, doesn't have a happy ending. Because those who died in Jerusalem not only died horrifying deaths, but they also went to hell. It, it would be one thing if they died a horrible death and then they ended up in heaven. And then everything they lost is made up through the fullness of the Lord. But it doesn't end that way. This, the, if they didn't believe Jesus' word about this temporal destruction, they wouldn't believe his word about the eternal destruction that is coming and that warning. There, there is nothing more gut-wrenching than this. This is the most sobering text I can imagine in, in all of the church here that does not end happily, that doesn't have a good resolve here. They died in a horrible way and then they went to hell, but it's not because, it is not because God the Lord did not want them to. Um, or sorry, it's not because the Lord wanted them to. It's because, it, it's not because he didn't love them. They simply didn't love him. It's not that he didn't want to save them. It's that they didn't want to be saved. Jesus said these words, he said, these are painful words. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. In other words, Jesus wanted to hug and to hold every single one of them, even the ones who were driving the nails into his hands and feet. He wanted to hold and hug them, even the worst of them, like a mother holds her baby. That's the compassion he had for them. And they didn't want it. He came to forgive them, and they didn't want to be forgiven. He warned them, and they didn't want to heed his warning. So let me ask you this, who do you blame for this? Whose fault is it? Is it God's here? When the beggar who smacked the food out of your hand later dies of starvation, whose fault is that? When the patient who attacked the surgeon later dies of the disease and sickness that he had, who then do you blame? When the people of that city are trapped and destroyed, 
who do you blame? When a pastor preaches the word of God and warns people to repent of their sin and tells them to come to church to receive the full and free forgiveness of all of their sins in Christ their Lord, and it falls on deaf ears, or the person gets angry and curses at him and storms out and slams the door, and that person is then lost forever. Whose fault is it? When someone is lost, who is to blame? This entire Sunday, in fact, the entire historical event of the destruction of Jerusalem serves as one massive, tremendous warning to you and to me. It is a stark reminder to us that the words of Jesus are true. That his word is true. That, he, that the Lord warns us about real things. It's not a scare tactic. When he talks about hell, when he talks about damnation and being lost, he's not, it's not a scare tactic to just keep you here or do something. He's telling you about something that is real. He's trying to save you from something, a, a real destruction. And the reality is that hell is a real place where real people go. Those who are there are there by their own fault alone. And not one ounce of blame goes to the Lord. It's not that he doesn't love them, that he didn't bleed out and die for them or to atone for their sins. It's that they didn't want it. They didn't want forgiveness. They didn't want salvation. They didn't want heaven. They didn't want to be with him. And all of this shows us what's really at stake when we refuse to hear God's word. I'm, I'm just going to say it uh, bluntly here. Skipping church is the most dangerous thing you can do. It doesn't feel like it, I know. It feels like nothing. But it is the most dangerous thing that you can do is reject the warning and not take seriously the warning of the Lord. It's not, it's not that you're going to immediately become a heathen if you skip one Sunday or you miss a Sunday or you immediately lose the faith. That's not how it happens. The danger is this. The danger is that when you skip once, you're likely to then skip again. One leads to two, two to three, to weeks, to months, to years, to decades. You schedule one thing on a Sunday morning, and then more, and more, and another, and another, until your faith eventually dies. And when your faith dies, it fades away very, very slowly. In fact, uh, most people, when they come back to church after not having come in years or decades, I ask them, do you remember when your last Sunday was in any church? And they don't know. It fades. It fades away. When's the last time you read the scriptures? I don't know. It vanishes from their heart. And when faith dies, you won't feel it. The day will come when it makes no difference to you where you are, whether you are in church or not, or where you are on a Sunday morning. It will make no difference to you whether you hear the word or not, whether you receive the Lord's body and blood for your forgiveness or not. It's just as well. I'm warning you about serious things and real, real dangers. 
By the way, if you have, if you're hearing this and you have been skipping church intentionally, neglecting the word, the sacraments, and nothing has happened to you and you're fine, that's not because it's not an actual dangerous thing or that these warnings are false. It's that God has been extremely patient and kind with you. He has been long-suffering with you and giving you more time, more and more time. You should be on your knees and thank God that he has not left you nor forsaken you, if this is the case. God's patience should not be used as an opportunity. uh, Sorry, God's patience should be used as an opportunity for our repentance and our reform. And it should not be used as an opportunity to sin without regret. Because you don't see an immediate consequence to it, that doesn't mean there's no problem with it. Now, this Sunday shows us what's at stake when you will not listen to God's word or take it seriously. If you close your ears to the word, it will cost you everything. Okay, I know this has not been a very cheery or happy sermon or a very happy text. Everything so far has been a harsh and stern warning. However, I do want to give you comfort in the midst of these difficult words here today. And not by going to other words, but with the same exact words, the same text that you have before you. As heart-wrenching as the gospel text for today may be, It is also at the same time entirely heartwarming and beautiful, if you can believe it. Jesus sobbing over Jerusalem is the best evidence that the Lord sincerely does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that all would turn from his way and live. Jesus sobbing over Jerusalem shows that Jesus, that the Lord, genuinely wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This shows the deep and profound love that the Lord has, even for those who reject him. If we were there that day, we might be tempted to say, look, Jesus, uh, Jerusalem is a lost cause. These people will never believe you. They can't be saved. Don't waste your time with them. So many people aren't going to care an ounce about what you have done and what you're doing. This is a lost cause. They don't care about your words or anything. So just give it up. That's, I would be tempted to say that. Don't lay your life down for these people. They don't care. They don't want you. They don't want anything that you do. To which Jesus would reply, saying, give me more time. And let me try again. And let me go to an extreme that I haven't ever gone before. Let me go and lay down my life for them. Let me open up my veins and spill my blood and pour out my life through my wounds for them. I know that they will despise and trample it, but I will spill it anyway. I don't want them to die. I love them and I give my life for them. Days before his own bitter suffering and death, Jesus showed more concern for this sinful world and everyone in it than for himself. He cared more about our suffering than his own. And he didn't just shed his blood for those who would believe that is false, that is wrong. 
He didn't count how many would believe, how many would be saved or be faithful. He simply gave everything he had, all he had for every single person, every person in the entire world who has ever lived, whoever will live and exist, every single one. He shed his blood even for those whom he knew would trample upon it. He wasn't wasteful. That is, that is what we call love. He shed his blood in love. He shed his blood with no regard for anything in the person that he was dying for, in you or in me, not your faith, not your faithfulness, not your unbelief, not your love, not your hate, nothing in you. He shed his blood for all people, every single person, every single person in Jerusalem. He shed his blood for them too. Before closing, let me tell you what I've been working up to, and it's this point. If Jesus has such love and compassion for those who would ultimately be damned, then you who are being saved have no reason ever to doubt whether your dear Lord loves you. If Jesus has such deep love and compassion for those who refuse to hear his word, then you who are hearing his word right now can be entirely certain and sure of his love for you. And if Jesus has such immense and profound love for those who don't care to come to church and receive his forgiveness, then you who are here right now can be entirely confident of his abounding, steadfast love and devotion and faithfulness to you. Your sin cannot erase his love because he loved us while we were yet sinners. Even if you've skipped church a thousand times, you've despised the word a thousand times, fallen into a thousand sins even this week, you have a God who loves you still, who desires your salvation, who thirsts for it above all things, who gave his life for you. Amen. Hear the words of this hymn. Love caused your incarnation. Love brought you down to me. Your thirst for my salvation procured my liberty. O love beyond all telling that led you to embrace. In love, all love excelling our lost and fallen race. Sin's debt, that fearful burden, cannot his love erase. Your guilt the Lord will pardon and cover by his grace. He comes for you, procuring the peace of sin forgiven, his children thus securing eternal life in heaven. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.